You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to a special edition of the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by sports broadcaster and journalist Jackie Oatley, who's covered women's football since 2004. Also by Molly Hudson of The Times and by Kieran Tavum of The Independent. Now, Phil Neville wasn't everyone's choice as England manager. To tell the truth, he wouldn't have been mine. But he's making his mark as a detail-driven and emotionally intelligent coach, he says winning next year's World Cup will be his greatest achievement. Is that a realistic ambition? Yes. Why not? Why not? I mean, they've got some very talented players. They've got a huge amount of support in terms of the infrastructure that would be the envy of most nations, I would say, around the world. I think they've got a very good manager who the players apparently very much seem to respect and enjoy playing for, which is a big thing. And um, they've got everything geared up to moving in the right direction. The big thing for, for Phil now is to settle on a team because he's gone through so many different players, hasn't he? Trying to mm. uh, try them out, see them firsthand. He goes to a great number of games, which is, you would think it was a minimum, but it is a good thing that he's doing that. And uh, he's leaving no stone unturned. So there's absolutely every reason why they should be going to that World Cup, not expecting, but feeling like they should take on the, the Harry Kane style of doing things, mm. which is, why not? Why couldn't it be us instead of the constant mantra that we heard from previous regimes was just try and get out of the group, try and get out of the group. Now, they have to aim higher because the support network is there and the depth of talent is there. Mm. He does come across as a, a modern coach in terms of you know the WhatsApp groups and the empathy that he shows. Two defeats in 12 games, is that about par for the course? I think it's one of those where, as cliche as it sounds, the proof is going to be in the pudding. It's one of those where, a bit like the England men's team, the qualification groups are fairly weak. They don't really come up against anybody that you can say is really going to go out and win the World Cup. It's not that kind of test. So I think the fact that we did struggle to beat Wales, eventually got there in the end, and that was a really big moment. But comparatively, I suppose it wasn't because we should have beat Wales and we should be aiming a lot higher than that. As Jackie says, you've got to go into it as you can be the best. And that's something that Phil's always said since he took over, that... You know, there's nothing wrong with aiming for the top and that's obviously what they want to do. But I think, yeah, there's big challenges with the group that we got. It's not easy. And I think definitely coming up against Sweden, they're a good side, but 
on paper you would say that England should be beating them. So it's definitely a work in progress and it's picking that best side and maybe how to get the best out of his best players. Mm. Yeah, Kieran, you know, your freelance work, you do a lot all around the world, especially in America. Give us an insight into the depth of quality of the opposition that, that England are going to face. Well, they've closed the gap. I think that's the first and most important thing to mention. In 2015, England went into the Canada World Cup as you know, a team that people thought might be able to do OK, but no one really expected them to do as well as they did, obviously, getting a bronze medal. It's very different this time round in 2019 when you look at the opposition that they're going to be coming up against. They've closed that gap. You know, the United States now look at England as a genuine contender, as a genuine opposition that could trouble them. And we've seen that with the formation of the She Believes Cup that England have played in in the last few years. And they've given the United States some tests over there. You look at, like, Germany. Germany are in transition. Germany have just hired a new head coach, Martina Voss-Tecklenburg, who will, surprisingly, has just left Switzerland. And her first six months is going to be preparing for the World Cup for Germany next year. So the teams around England have improved over the last few years as is mirrored and, and parallel to the women's game in general. But I think England have probably grown a little bit quicker than, than some of the other teams around them and that's why they've leapfrogged so many in the last few years. There's a great opportunity here, isn't there, Jackie, in terms of the broader picture of promoting the women's game. A World Cup is the biggest and best possible stage for them. Well, it is. I think just like... Sorry to compare, and people in the women's game don't like it when you talk about the men's World Cup. There are lots of people who don't normally watch football, but will tune in for a World Cup. My friends, who I can't drag to a game ever, but they would tune in for the World Cup. And I think it's a similar thing in the women's game, because there are so many people in this country who are obsessed with football, who adore football, who absorb it from every orifice, pretty much. And they are ready to be drawn into the women's game, because it is football. Now, previously... 10, certainly 20 years ago, it was very difficult to get anybody interested. Certainly when I started covering the game in, in 2004, we had the Women's Euros here in the northwest of England, 2005. On the eve of the tournament, Manchester United ditched their women's team. Things were going downhill. They weren't really progressing and people would tune in for a game and they go, oh, the goalkeepers. And it was so frustrating. Whereas now the game has improved because the women are now full-time. They have an opportunity to be the best that they can be, which previously they couldn't be. So, of course, that translates to the standard on the pitch. And now there is that kind of coverage on television, certainly for the major tournaments, which there didn't even used to be. Particularly, people may not realise that. It wasn't even on television previously or radio, certainly not in the newspapers. So, of course, the best way, the quickest way to get more people interested in the game and knowing who the players are and caring about it is to be successful on the biggest stage of all. It's mm. a huge opportunity. Mm. So to address the broader issue then, Molly, who are the players that you think the first-time viewer should be looking at and appreciating? In terms of England? England, think, yeah. I think you've got to look at people like Frank Kirby. She was tagged as the mini-messi, which I know is a term that she doesn't like at all. But it's not helped her, has it? It hasn't really, no. Um, but I think she's turned as that because she is... Her football is very attractive. It's good to watch. It's entertaining for the viewers. And I think another thing that probably gets forgotten or maybe people don't know about the women's game is how accessible people like Frank Herbie are. You know, she's one of the best players in the world, obviously nominated for the Ballon d'Or. And you can go and get her shirt and go and speak to her after a game and sign autographs. And that's something that... That's a massive USP of the women's game. You just can't get in the men's game. And, you know, people can go and see her at Kings Meadow for Chelsea and she's right there. And I think 
it's the same with Lucy Bronze, obviously, now she's moved to Leon, but they're definitely all of those top, top players are right there, and that's so good for the children, any fans that come down to watch women's football. Mm. One of the great blows, Kieran, was Jordan Nobbs was going to miss the World Cup. How big a blow is that? Massive. Mm. She's the engine in that midfield. Jordan has developed so much over the last few years since she came into the fold, towards the end of Hope Powell's tenure, but was really given an important role and a leading role in Mark Sampson's side. She's captain the side at times. She's vice-captain as well. She is the engine in that midfield. She is the box-to-box player that can play in front of the back four. She's a typical number eight. You know, she can play in front of the back four when she needs to, when out of possession, when the ball is in possession. She is the player that will support those forward players, like Molly says, like Frank Kirby and your Jodie Taylors and Ellen White's and Nikita Paris's. Jordan's a massive loss, and I think not just for the England team, but it's a loss for those people that are going to watch the World Cup next year. We, we missed out on seeing Kim Little at the Euros in 2017 for Scotland, one of the best players in the world. And we are now going to be deprived of the opportunity to see one of the best midfielders in the world for England. So they now need to find a player that has got that engine. There's a few possible candidates. Izzy Christensen is one who plays for Leon and is a, a number eight similar to Jordan. But I wouldn't say she's irreplaceable, but she's definitely a player that they are going to have to to try and find a replacement for because she is going to be missed. Mm-hmm. It's a huge shame for Jordan herself. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we did the Women's World Cup in 2015, she had a hamstring injury in that tournament. She went, there was always talk about her possibly playing, but she was never going to be fit enough to play. She missed out then, and she's a player who deserves to play on, on the big stage. So for her personally, it's a huge letdown, but the only plus side is she will have many more major tournaments in her, hopefully Olympics, mm-hmm. home Euros, World Cups, but it's a massive blow for her. With the Olympics, Molly, as an outsider, which is essentially what I am, I looked at that statement from the Scottish FA, which basically said, grudgingly, we'll support Scottish players playing for a British team in the Olympic Games, but we'll do nothing to facilitate that. Is that part of the attitude that needs to change? I think governing bodies in general definitely need to help out a lot more. They need to help the game reach its full potential. I think in terms of the Olympics, we saw the Team GB at London 2012. And as an outsider, in terms of not being a football player at the very highest level, why would you not want to represent your country at the Olympics? You know, that must be one of the greatest achievements that you look back on at at the end of your career. And I think the Scottish players that played in 2012 would say that. So I think... It's good that they're not going to stop it. It's a shame that it's begrudgingly been done and it's a bit of a shame that it's kind of gone the way it has. But hopefully, you know, we can get a team together and these players can go out and experience that. And like we say about Jordan, hopefully that'll be something that she can experience and hopefully, you know, pay a key part in that team doing really well. I think the the problem for Team GB and, and the Scottish FA can kind of understand a little bit why they had some apprehensions and were possibly going to stand in the way because they have a fear that there's not going to be any of their players represented in that team. In 2012, we had two players, Kim Little and Ifeoma DK, were the only two players that Hope Powell selected for that side, but we didn't have any Welsh representation. Jess Fishlock was a massive oversight in terms of not going to the 2012 Olympics. And the home nations have a concern, I think, that if in 2020 England do qualify, and of course we're talking about a Team GB, still have to qualify. We still have to be one of the top three European nations at the World Cup next year. But if we do go there, how many of those players are going to represent the whole of Great Britain? Because I can guarantee 
that the majority of the players will be made up by England and I think that's why there's apprehension from the other home nations. And also they are concerned of course about losing their uh, independent status in the eyes of FIFA. They have been reassured repeatedly over the years. And I, can't imagine, politics, I can't imagine why they didn't believe Sepp Blatter. I mean, wouldn't you believe him <laughs> if he told you something? You'd say he's, he's absolutely bang to rights. He's definitely going to stick to his word. He's gone. But there is that apprehension and I think you have to respect that. But they have been reassured. So whilst you're saying, or you know, it's petty and what have you, it's progress, the fact they're not going to stand in the way. And and uh, there is great respect from the FA as well towards their individual viewpoints. It's just a case of it's the best thing for the players. And they don't want to talk about it too much because, as Kieran says, they'd still have to finish as one of the top three nations from Europe at the World Cup. So they don't really want to talk about it too much. But the fact is, it would be a huge thing, bearing in mind that once whatever stage they go out of this World Cup, hopefully right at the end, but they won't have a competitive match until the start of the home Euros in 2021 if they don't go to the Olympics. So those Olympic Games could be absolutely huge in terms of development and, mm. and we remember what it did in terms of the public perception of the women's game here. Mm. But we have to look at the big picture and the big picture is that women's football needs projection, it needs strategic support. I suppose we've got to ask the question, is it getting enough? I think we'd all probably say no, but I think... We can sit here and say certain people need to do better or certain organisations need to do better, but there is no easy fix and it's not something that's going to be solved overnight. I think if we look back at, say, 2015, how far the game has come since then, there's definitely positive signs. There's Yes, there's there've been mistakes been made in international setup and in club setup. Obviously, there's teams that have dropped by the wayside, but I think in terms of the long run, some of the decisions that have been made, like the introduction of Man United... They will be good for the game in the long run. It's just sometimes you feel as if we're trying to run before we can walk in certain situations. Mm. And I think, I think with United, maybe getting rid of some of the more established teams and putting them, obviously they weren't in the championship, which mm. arguably was the wrong decisions anyway, mm. um, to put them in the Super League if they'd have gone in there. You kind of leave in. Well, at least they had 12 teams rather than 11, which well, that, strikes that me would, as <laughs> Yeah, that would have been good. But I think having, for example, the professional top tier, mm. and when there's teams that are on minimum wage, you're thinking maybe if they'd have left them as semi professional, has going professional made that much difference for the fact that I know, speaking to Lee Birch, the Yeovil manager, there's players in the championship that can't afford to give up their day jobs, they can't afford to become professional footballers and they're probably better than some of the footballers that we have in a professional league that can afford to live like that. The majority of the players lower down the division are young players and they've got other income or they're at uni. And it's kind of making it so that everyone... Obviously, we want a professional league, but we need to make sure that that's sustainable and that it's not just an idea that we kind of come up with and there we go, professional league, off you go, go mm. and play. But it needs the infrastructure behind that. Yeah, there was that example of Sheffield United, wasn't there, that you talked about where... Was it six players just couldn't turn up for the game? Yeah, it's the sort of thing that's happened over the years, isn't it? It just doesn't get reported upon because mm. it isn't national newspaper coverage, but it was actually reported in The Sun. Um, but you're always going to have those problems. While players are semi-professional, in some cases not paid at all, people show up to a game expecting them... Because they're, they're convinced, you know, they're used to the mindset, they're conditioned to watching men's professional football, which is not just the top four tiers in the men's game. It's below that as well now, isn't it, in terms of full-time professional. The women's game is still massively playing catch-up. And, and it's great there's so much more interest in the women's game now, but people do have to realise 
the game is still taking steps forwards and it can't leap forwards unless you've got some massive injection of cash and infrastructure, which is possibly something we'll, we'll come on to at some stage mm. as to the future of the WSL. But that's where they are now. Well, let's start doing it in the broadest possible terms, Kieran, because of your global platform, if you like. What are the systems, what are the countries in which they've got it right? And how important in the big picture is you know, UA for putting a lot more resources in. You've had the visa sponsorship mm -hmm. deal, which is seven years. So the corporate world is beginning to wake up. Who do we learn from? That is a really good question. And I think in the past, I probably would have said the United States with the National Women's Soccer League out there, but they haven't got it right either. And the reason that they haven't got it right is because they put themselves in situations where a player can be on a, on a roster, as obviously they would describe it, and then the following day they can be waived or released, as we would describe it. And that player all of a sudden is unemployed and has potentially nowhere to go because there's only nine teams in that league in America. So they have problems with players being released or waived or traded. You can be, as a player, you can be settled in an area, you could go into work the next day and you could be told by your head coach that, sorry, we're trading you to the other end of the country because we want college draft picks for next year or we want one of the players from one of the opposition teams. So America probably has the players that we would look up to, but I don't think they necessarily have the structure. And then I look at some of the other leagues as well. Germany is a top-heavy league, a little bit like what we have in England with Wolfsburg and Bayern Munich dominating there. In France, we have Lyon, Paris Saint-Germain and Montpellier who are well-invested in but are pulling away from the, league, the, the teams below them. The problem is, is that we have in other leagues, we have teams that are of professional, semi-professional and amateur status all fighting in the same division. America is the only league that's fully professional alongside the FA Women's Super League. You have a, a league in Sweden and very similar where teams dominate at the top, although we have seen a, a smaller team, Patea, who won the league this year and beat some of the bigger sides around them. But to be honest with you, I think, I think a lot of leagues have got a work to do. The one league that I guess is probably going a little bit under the radar that's doing very well is down in Mexico. They've just had the, the Mexican league final and there was over 40,000 supporters there. You know, they are getting big crowds for those bigger games. Maybe we need to learn a thing or two from them, but there are... Problems in every league, unfortunately. No one has got it 100% correct at the moment. And in terms of the investment from UEFA, it's massive for women's football. I think FIFA would probably like to go down a similar route. I think the problem that we have with, with UEFA and FIFA is that they've sold corporate packages and tied men's and women's football together. So it's very difficult to give women's football its own platform and its own identity when you are selling all of these packages and corporate opportunities that tie in both men's and women's football. And what's happened here is obviously Visa have invested in UEFA's women's side. I think FIFA would probably like to go down that road at some point in the future, but a lot of their corporate deals are tied into men's and women's football. Politics, eh? They'd love it. Indeed. <sighs> um, when, you, when you look at you know, a situation like Lewis, for instance, where they pay men and women the same amount, OK, it's, it's a lower tier club, but the principle applies. Could you apply that principle on a broader level in the English game? No. It, it works at Lewis because of yeah. the, the level that they're at, respectively higher for the women's than they are the men's. Um, the risk of stating the obvious, it's not going to work at no, Chelsea, Man United, whatever. You're not going to have £150,000 a week, but what I'm talking about is that you have readily identifiable personalities who are paid a decent rate. Yes, possible. Then you ask, where does that money come from? And then you get to the same answer, which is investment. And that's the same problem that pretty much every women's team will have. I mean, even the top top women's teams are 
struggling to make money out of it. I mean, for various reasons, probably, that I'm probably not best to comment on. But that is always the end answer, money, investment. Yeah, well, to support you, as a senior figure at Manchester United, I asked him a couple of years ago, why on earth haven't you got a women's team? And he said, the view from Florida is that we can't monetize it. Now, surely the mindset of the clubs has to change here. And I suppose as, as writers and journalists, we're part of that process because the clubs themselves have to open the doors, which is actually usually against their almost like professional principle. How difficult is it to get free access to players? More difficult than it used to be, definitely. I've been involved in the game for about eight years and, okay, you want the game to be more professional. When I started out, you could approach players on social media and say, I'm doing a podcast or I'm writing a blog or whatever it might have been that you were doing seven, eight years ago, and they would respond to you and say, you know, I'd be really up for that because there just wasn't the coverage, as Jackie outlined earlier. Now you have press officers and you have agents involved in the game who will be responsible for those media opportunities and that access that you need. Now, I am completely for press officers and media teams looking after their players. I think it's important that players now with the added exposure they get, that they are media trained, that they have that opportunity to be treated a little bit like the men, but we're not where the men's game is. So you cannot treat it exactly the same as you would. You can't apply the same rules, or you shouldn't, in my mind, apply the same rules to a Frank Kirby as you do to an Eden Hazard, for example. Um, So it is more difficult. I wouldn't say it's a closed door, but it's maybe just closed a little bit more than it had been a few years ago. It is a big frustration, isn't it? Kieran's being very polite here, but I know it is a big frustration, so I don't want to speak for you, but he's he's a very polite young man. Um, In terms of... We've had it over the years, um, even with the FA, dare I say, um, really good now, uh, situation now, the people they've got involved. But it is so frustrating when you want to speak to a player or do an interview with somebody, and I hear from various colleagues of various publications who say, I've tried four or five times for a player, not even a huge name player, but from one of the top flight clubs, and the club hasn't even got back to them. Now, Mm. we bash our heads against a brick wall because there's so many people now who are keen to give the women's game airtime and keen to put it in newspapers and to write stories, but they're not only not being helped, but actually being blocked by certain press officers, only certain ones, not all of them, um, who are treating the women's game the same as the men. And that can't continue. It can't. You need to actively phone up journalists and say, hi, we've got this player who you may see on a Sunday afternoon. She's got a really interesting backstory. Let us know if you'd like to do a piece on her. Here's a bit that I can tell you about her and she's willing to talk. People want to do those stories, but instead they're actually being blocked from talking to players. Mm. It can't continue. I think what I would say is it's the best description I can give is a very hit and miss. There's teams that I've worked with that I honestly couldn't fault them. I could ring up on a Monday, by a Tuesday, I'd have a sit-down interview with the player, photographer, whatever you wanted. And there's clubs where you could literally just, like like Jackie said, you can you can not be getting back to. There's cases, particularly in the Championship, where the media departments are run by foundations and they're not even run by the club media department. In my experience, the people that are run by a proper media department are actually better because they understand that the media aren't the enemy and there's something that can work together with the club to get good publicity out there. I think I can say on behalf of all of us, we're not out here to demonise clubs and we're not out here to do negative stories. Even positive stories, you have to, you really have to jump through hoops to try and get anywhere. And I think that's really frustrating for us and I know it's frustrating for my editors as well because 
I'll come back to them and they'll say, well, how can you not get that player? And the simple answer is the club just don't want to do it. Mm. Australia is a freelancer. I will say that because mm. you're missing out on, you know, admittedly paid opportunities. You know, you've got a good story and you think you can work something up and you sell it into an editor and they're all for it. And then when it comes to actually trying to get to the player in question, sometimes it doesn't happen. Mm. So Jackie's right. I'm probably a little bit more <laughs> sit on the fence and a little bit more polite about it. But yeah, look, I've had the same frustrations as, as probably these guys and, and a lot of the other journalists that we work with. Um, but I would say also that it applies in, in other countries as well. You know, I've had issues with clubs in Europe and um, sometimes in, in Australia as well when you're trying to get to their players. I would say, and I hate to use it as an example because it, you know, some people will kind of probably question why it's, I cover the game a lot more out there, but the United States PR guys, in my experience, have been, are excellent. They completely get it. We are bombarded with emails and press releases from the United States clubs. I know everything that's going on there because they are literally sending you stuff every day. Mm-hmm. They have media teams, much like they do here, and they seem to be a lot more proactive. Is there interest now? You know, you've been an observer of the game for you know, five, six years. Is there an interest now, a, you know, a genuine interest from the desks, the news desks and the sports desks themselves? Yeah, I think so. I think depending on which news desk you go to. For in the last year, I've written for the Indy, the Eye, the Evening Standard. I know, obviously, Molly's at the Times and the Telegraph have just employed, obviously, a full-time women's football reporter. The Guardian do great work. They've just done their top 100 women's footballers, which is a massive statement from them. Um, so I think there, there is. I think there's still work to do. I think, you know, I will occasionally pitch ideas and don't get a response. I'm not necessarily saying that's because I've pitched a women's football idea. It could be that the editor's just busy and has missed my email. But the stats don't lie. The, the coverage of women's football and women's sport in general is still far too low. So editors and sports desks still have work to do. Mm, yeah, Jackie, I, I noticed you were talking you know, last week at the Women in Football event where you talked about maybe it being two generations before you get almost female-led content in football. Can you um, give us an idea of and articulate why? Yeah, what I was referring to was people's opinions, preconceptions, which are based purely on... Biases and stereotypes. Biases, prejudice, stereotypes, not based on the current modern day and the status quo and who knows what about what sport, Um, but based on people growing up and only knowing women who don't know anything about football and don't care about football and can't get that prejudice out of their heads. Um, So, (laughs) putting it frankly, it might be that these people need to pass on and their grandchildren (laughs) come along with uh, girls in their class and sisters, much like my kids, who are treated equally, are given similar opportunities and who know about football from a young age, love football, care about it and do see it as an opportunity to work in. I think it's that generation really that's really going to treat it equally because that's what they know. Whereas some of the older generation, not just in football, but in other types of prejudice, they can't change their language. They can't change the way they think about race, for example, Mm. is, is another example where people have been brought up a certain way to think a certain way, to talk a certain way, and it's really only going to be, sadly, when their children, dare I say grandchildren, come along and they're the decision-makers because of their life experience. It's definitely a case of, you know, like you say, maybe the grandkids, because I look at it and, yeah, I have experienced sexism in my short career, but I think you look at the people that are, particularly in newspapers, I think newspapers are probably notoriously bad for it, that... The same women that have been in newspapers that are reporters that are very, very good and at the top of their game are the same and they've been there for years and there isn't necessarily that crop of 
young women coming up and you, you question why that is and you question whether that is because they don't have the role models there and you question whether that's because it's something that wasn't necessarily a career path that they felt like they could go into. But for you on a practical basis, you're a uni student and you're managing to hold down you know, a very high profile job within the women's game. Is that typical? It's definitely, I think if you talk to people in the women's game, maybe not at uni in my specific example, but people at work, like Kieran's got a job and there's 99% of the people that you come across in women's football aren't doing it as a career because the money isn't there. In the same way that we talk about the players, a lot of them aren't professional or they don't have it as their main income. You know, you can say the same for the people that are trying to provide the coverage of the game. Let's look at the crowds as an issue because it is a, a, you know, a huge issue. Everton, who beat Liverpool on Sunday, why on earth that was staged when Liverpool were going to play Manchester United in the afternoon, uh, I'll, I'll let others explain. Their average gate, 207. Liverpool, 451. They're figures which should chill the blood, shouldn't they? They should, yeah. I think the problem that those two clubs specifically have is that they're playing in areas where their, their main catchment area aren't based. You know, Liverpool have moved to Prenton Park at Tranmere and Everton are playing at Southport Football Club, which is, what, 40 minutes outside of Liverpool. So you have a situation where you are asking families with... Uh, and it is a family-targeted sport, no doubt about that. You're looking at trying to get those young children through the gates to inspire them to, to see them on the field somewhere down the line or just keep them coming through the turnstiles. You're asking them to travel a, a relatively long distance just for a home game. So that is a problem, but that's not just applied to those two. You know, Yeovil are playing in Dorchester, although they're actually doing quite well with their crowd. So it's the location of the of the games would seem to be a problem in certain areas, but not in others. But the biggest challenge, and, and I've got a friend that works at one of the, the WSL clubs, and the biggest challenge that, that he faces and that the clubs face is that they are trying to get crowds through the turnstiles but then there are also issues over trying to engage supporters whether that's streaming games online or games being live on BT Sport or BBC Sport you know for me as a as a freelancer I can watch more games by staying at home yeah. on a Sunday I can watch a game on Facebook potentially a game on BT Sport and a game on BBC online if I go to a game I only get to see that one game and we still have the issue of the women's football show being on at 11:30 in the evening I don't stay up and watch it I might watch it on repeat during the week but you know we're the clubs have a difficult job in terms of trying to get people through the turnstiles because they're trying to balance that with engagement through streaming games and games being shown live on television. Mm, I've, been sp I've spoken on here before about, from my point of view, if you have regular live women's football, why not at three o'clock on a Saturday? Now, I know that you know, the, the historic opposition to that is beginning to splinter. If you've got a prominent platform Saturday afternoon and then you can use that to promote any games that might be played on Sunday. Doesn't that make more sense than where we are at the moment? Are you talking about a game being shown on TV at 3 yes. o'clock on a Saturday? Yeah, well, we've got that historical issue, of course, um, that no games can be shown live at 3 o'clock on a Saturday. But that's splintering, mean, though, isn't it? Should, that's yeah, beginning to be diluted. it's always going to be that way, does it? Yeah. yeah, I think part of the problem is that women's football's trying to fit in around the men's game. And one of the biggest issues, you ask anybody who's involved in the women's game over the years, whether it's players, administrators, journalists, and they'd say they don't know when the games are, they change, and you'd have so many games bunched up over a couple of months and then none for a month, and you've got all sorts of issues with injuries and not to mention pitches. Oh, there are a lot of problems with the women's game. It's not all doom and gloom, but there are a few things to sort out. Um, so fixtures have been a problem, and I do have 
some sympathy. <laughs> I'm one of the few people that probably does have sympathy with the FA because they, they've only got certain slots they can put games in. Of course, you've got the stadia when the grounds are available, which was notoriously an issue for Doncaster over the years, sharing with the men. And it is a problem. And at the risk of changing the subject or slightly veering off, I think it all comes down to potentially women's football domestically in this country being taken over by a separate entity. And I don't think the FA would actually stand in the way of that separate entity if they felt that they would be able to bring a certain guaranteed infrastructure, the finances, whether that comes from Premier League money, potentially a tie-up with the Premier League, maybe, because it doesn't take a huge amount of money. But if it could really stand on its own two feet, really get the right marketing people, get the right medical people, um, make the top is at least professional, fully professional, so these players aren't having to stack shelves for a long shift and then go to train for a couple of hours at the mm. end of it. Make the women's game the best that it can be so that you're actually drawing together the brains and the, the marketing nous to enable the players to, to be the best they can so the players and the fans know when the games are going to be and everybody's got an app with the games, the fixtures, the score updates, the matches live, if you like. Somebody needs to grab it by the scruff of the neck. And the FA have done a really good job in the last few years in bringing it into where it is now. But it's not really their remit to monetize it and, and to make it a huge commercial success. Perhaps it needs an outside body. And I know that there is somebody who I've spoken to a few times and met up with who has got success in improving and making a big difference in another women's sport. And he's looking to try to make that happen mm. um, on a voluntary basis because he can see the potential for it. And there is so much potential in the women's game. I think at the moment, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you put your games on a Sunday, which is what historically they've done, and it works to some extent, if you put it on a Sunday, you've got the big TV game that's then on a Sunday, which tends to be... So then... Well, hence my idea for 3 o'clock on a Saturday. If you put it on 3 o'clock on a Saturday, there'll be the people that say, well, people are going to go to men's games. But the argument is, if you're tailoring the game to men's fans, then tailor it to men's fans, don't tailor it to families, which is how it is tailored mm. at the moment. And if you're tailoring it to families, arguably it doesn't matter if it's clashing with the men, because they're not... It's a different target audience. That isn't the target audience that's going to go stand on the terraces at Old Trafford. Yeah, they're talking boxing about paper in the house. Surely that should be something that the women's game looks at in terms of free tickets, school parties. Now, I think that would be a good thing, but would other people argue, well, actually, it's just cheapening That's the a game? That's stigma, yeah. With yeah. What do you think? Big they do, they do. do. I, know, I know certain clubs do do free tickets for local schools. Chelsea are very good. I know Chelsea distribute tickets to schools around the area. Obviously, they play their football down at AFC Wimbledon's Kings Meadow Stadium, and I know that they distribute tickets around. When you go to um, Norberton Station, which is obviously the closest one to where they play, there's branding on the, on the train ticket gates as well. So they're one of the better clubs at doing it. I don't know how many clubs actually give out free tickets, and, and like the guy say, it's potentially cheapening the game, but it's the, getting that balance, isn't it? Do you want people through the turnstiles or, or do you want to charge people and potentially turn them off but also giving free tickets away it's easy for someone to accept those tickets get up on a Sunday morning weather's not great outside thinking well I haven't paid for the ticket I'm not going to go yeah it's one of the biggest issues you speak to anybody and, and nobody has an answer I know one of the clubs is engaging or about to engage in, in an extensive research project to try to find out who actually should be their target audience mm. because at the moment a lot of it is geared towards 
young people. And actually the question is perhaps it's different in different areas. So some clubs actually have an older fan base. Yeah. Fan base yeah. and, uh, and elsewhere it could be the families and the fact that people don't realise you can get a family ticket for 10, 15, 16 pounds. So a lot more research needs to be done into it. Yeah, I'd like to try and get some sort of insight or some questions from the, the listeners and the viewers. On this subject, this is probably for you, Molly, uh, Craig, Craig Hadley, is it possible to increase in t attendances without moving away from targeting just families and kids? And if not, what's the best way to bring in adult fans without scaring off the traditional fan base? I think, for me personally, I'd say that's probably the biggest issue or one of the biggest issues in the women's game right now. I think... You've got to look at someone like Manchester United that have come into the Championship. Obviously, they haven't had a women's team for a long period of time and there was no established fan base there. They've come in and they've broken attendance records and that's in the Championship when they're not always... They're not playing in a particularly glamorous location in Lee. It's not the easiest thing to get to, certainly not on public transport. You know, for that argument we were saying about teams playing outside of their kind of remit, it's not the easiest one to get to, but they're still finding a way of getting people down. Now, whether that is because it's Manchester United and it's the brand name and whether it's because of that and the fact that it was also new and the marketing has been pretty good from United, to be fair to them, you know, the social media campaigns have been good and they've kind of found the solution. But those people that go down probably aren't your stereotypical women's football fan. There'll be people that have gone to the Man United games that probably have never seen women's football or at least haven't paid attention to it to any kind of level to actually actively go out and see a game. And I think, you know, there's been some kind of controversy about, you know, the men's football atmosphere, the culture, is very different to your stereotypical women's football. And I think it can go one of two ways. You can have the men's football fans and you can target to all those people that are just generally interested in football and those people that, say, for the 2015 World Cup, the viewing figures rose and rose as we got further into the tournament. And if you're trying to target it towards those people, you know, don't just target it to families because then you're cutting off a huge, huge, big portion of the country that is, is love football. You know, we're a, we're a football country. And I think you can't just target it to women and children and you can't, you can't keep handing out free tickets because I think it just just ruins it. It kind of makes it like, oh, we need to give these away for free because people don't want to come and watch it otherwise. Mm. One for you, Kieran, for me. Martin G. I hear that women's football has the quality, but without the theatrics and diving of the men's game. Considering that many complain about this, do you think that this will cause male fans to move over to the female game? Also, is this a USP for the female game? Well, when I spoke to Emma Hayes, she was spitting feathers because her <laughs> players didn't go down often enough and well enough. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would be lying if it doesn't exist entirely. I have seen players dive. Uh, maybe not in England, but I've certainly seen it in other countries. Ramona Backman was a, was a high-profile one. That was back in 2010, wasn't it, for a World Cup playoff against uh, Switzerland. Um, I know Ramona has apologised since then. Long time ago, she was young. We'll let her off that one, but uh, England still qualified. But it does exist, but nowhere near uh, the level of the men's game. Um, I remember, I think it was probably a year or two ago, I think one of a player for Chelsea, I think it was Ji So Yun, was sent off for, for diving after two bookings. But it's rare. It is rare. Does it turn men off the men's game and does it bring them to the women's game? I think it's, I think it's much broader than that. 
Um, I mean, you know, you're looking at a 30, mid guy in his mid 30s sat right in front of you who took an interest in the women's game nearly 10 years ago because I got introduced to Kelly Smith working as a, a local journalist and was quite humbled by how modest she was. You know, she was considered one of the best players in the world. And here she was sat in her living room chatting to me about anything and everything. So I think it's what Molly said earlier on. I think it's that access that you get. It's feeling more part of the team and the club because you can get autographs after a game. You can get selfies after a game. And it might not be guys like me that, that are interested in that, but it might be their daughters or their sons that are interested in something like that. But I don't think diving in the game is necessarily something that would convert men to women's football. I think it's much broader than that. I think, you know, the game has grown and the game has got better. And you will see guys commenting on social media posts, videos of goals or a piece of skill. And they're, you know, they're like, well, wow, you know, if that was messy, everyone would be talking about it. Mm. So I think the quality of the game and the, the quality of the product is what is attracting men, not the fact that diving is, is less prevalent. OK, on for you, Jackie. Simon Purton. I think you'll be familiar with this question. I've watched quite a bit of women's football now for the last five years, and while the outfield players are technically good <laughs> as the men, I've never yet seen a decent goalkeeper. Why are they lacking so far behind in that department? Well, anybody who's watching this rather than listening will see my <laughs> body language has gone very defensive and I'm folding my arms because, oh, my goodness, we've heard it over the years. And, of course... There have been lots of issues with women goalkeepers over the years. But if people actually realise it's because these people never got any coaching until they're at a, a very senior level, then they would appreciate that it's not because they're innately not very good with their hands or saving the ball from going into the back of the net. It's because they were never given any coaching. You'd have these kids going to academies at the age of four, five, six, getting goalkeeper coaching at that age. Whereas the women, in, you, you speak to Rachel Brown Finnis about it. She was full international. And I think that's possibly the first time she got coached, if at all. Um, and, then, and then had it over the years. But it's just not... I hate to use the, um, the pun level playing field, but it's just not. So if you get these girls into academies early on and give them specific goalkeeper coaching, then at least they've got a chance of being the best they but, can be. But it's part of the problem that actually... Really six it, foot six. Well, exactly. Well. And that, that's, that's the point I'm, I was going <laughs> to make. That, issue, yeah. Yeah, because they are, on average, and it's according to, to Emma, around about four inches shorter than the average male goalkeeper, yet they still have to defend a goal with the same dimensions. Yeah, so, I've heard you talk about that before and say, yeah. should it be smaller? And I don't think it's realistic to get smaller goals put out on a Sunday afternoon compared to what's... I think it's just not a realistic thing. But, I mean, you do have some women's goalkeepers who are six foot. The England men's goalkeeper is only six foot and he's four, five, six inches shorter than a lot of the other top goalkeepers. And, and largely, he makes up for it with his superior ability in other departments. So I do have a theory about it, and I've had a long chat with, with Rachel Brown-Finnis and others about this, about the theory of... And I'll try to get Rachel the job, actually, because <laughs> I think it would be great if they had somebody like her going into schools and sporting environments to... Well, as it, a goalkeeping coach. As a goalkeeper. To, to go in, talent ID, these young female athletes who are really good at various sports, check the ones with the, the hand-eye coordination and the height, crucially, and say to them, have you considered football? Have you considered going in goal? And give them that kind of training. Because you look at Lizzie Arnold, who was nominated for Sports Personality of the Year, and she was talent ID'd, and lots of women for Olympic 
sports, winter Olympic mm -hmm. sports, have been. And I think that could be a real success story. Get the taller ones with a hand-eye coordination and give them some specific coaching. Then you're giving yourself a chance. I think it, it doesn't help that, I mean, I'm 20 and when I was at secondary school, I didn't ever play football. It was never an option. It was netball or it was hockey. And that's not years and years ago. You know, that's five years ago or whatever. If you don't start at that age, how, how will you ever... Like you say, how will you ever spot these people? Yeah. How will they ever be in goal to know whether they are in goal? No. It's not the same talent pool as you get with and the actually, in, They have been shoved in goal by their mates because they're not... Yeah, I've goal. been involved in Olympic programmes where they've done that mm -hmm. and it is a relatively simple thing to do. You know, the, the, it goes right back to the East Germans where you can look at individuals' physiological profiles and say, right, OK, that person is good in that sport or this position and on pitch. We need to sort of begin to draw it together, Kieran. I just want to talk about Ada Hegerberg mm. uh, and not dwell on the jerk and the twerk and everything else, but actually her importance to the game. Mm. How important is it that she mends the fences with the Norwegians and plays in the World Cup? Yeah, I don't think she'd want to talk about the twerking either. I think that was one of the things that she's tried to do in all Complete the major opportunities that she's, that she's had since. You know, she has just had probably the biggest moment of her career completely overshadowed by conversations about something that was a very, very stupid comment. I think it was right to pull up the French DJ on it, but it has overshadowed one of the biggest moments of her career. And now she is trying to take the opportunity to do as much media as she can to to talk about the more important things in her mind of actually winning and, and actually trying to inspire young girls to... There's a powerful message there, isn't there? Yeah, I think... The, believe in yourself. Yeah, believe in yourself. I think she said during her speech, didn't she, to young girls, believe in yourself. And, and that's one of the things Ada's never been short of. You know, she burst onto the scene at the Euros in 2013 as a 17-year-old, scored one of the goals of the tournament, helped her team get to the latter stages. In fact, they got to the final, lost to Germany in Euro 2013. And she was part of that team. Ada Hegerberg has been on the radar for quite some time. Unfortunately, it took something like the incident at the Ballon d'Or to really propel her to another level. But she is one, an important individual in the women's game. She's incredibly intelligent. She speaks a number of languages because she's already played at the age of 23 in Norway, in Germany, in France. So when she speaks, people do listen. You know, her sister plays as well at a high level. Her sister, Andrina Hegerberg, plays for Paris Saint-Germain. So they are rivals, if you like, in, in their domestic competition. And they are recognised as focal points in, in their own country. Now, neither of them are playing for Norway at the moment. Ada hasn't played through choice and Andrina is not being selected at the moment. Is it important that she settles her differences and plays at the World Cup? Probably not so much for her, I don't think, but it's massively important for Norway. They've managed to qualify without her, but she adds a completely different dimension if she's playing. But she has a profile now. She is one of the most recognised players in, in the world and certainly in Europe for what she's doing with her club Lyon. The problem that she has is that Lyon outside of Europe and probably outside of France are seen as a club that can you really look at a player like Ada who is scoring 30, 40, sometimes 50 goals a season in a domestic competition where they are so far superior to the teams around them and she's not playing for her national team. That is the question that some people are asking, is how can you give a World Player of the Year to a player who's not playing at the national level? I don't see her playing at the World Cup next year. Her focus since joining Lyon has always been Lyon, and I, I don't see her going to the World Cup next mm, year, and something that, drastically changes. That'd be a shame. Um, so let's wrap this up, if we may. Just a final question for, for all three of you. If you have one wish for women's football in 2019, what is it? Jackie? I would say it's the buns on seats issue. If that could be cracked, the marketing, 
maybe do the analysis, the research, if that needs to happen, and it seems like it does. Find a way of letting people know when the games are, where they can park, where they can buy tickets. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? But I do think there is an issue with actually getting through to what I think is an enormous potential fan base. Let them know all this stuff about the local teams, get the apps set up um, and the, the uh, notifications. There are so many opportunities that don't need to cost a huge amount of money. Some of it's common sense, mm. getting the right people in the right marketing jobs, get those bums on seats. And that way makes it easier for sports editors to say, yep, yeah, we should be covering this, and for TV companies to say, we should get this on. Um, so that's, that's the biggest thing a lot of us have a bugbear with, is bums on seats. Molly? I think the one wish for 2019 has to be for England to win the World Cup. And not because I'm an England fan or because, you know, we all want England to do well, but the repercussions for the game. We got the bronze medal in 2015, and look what that did. And I think... You know, it would just completely change the game. It would change the way people view the game. It would give the game that audience that we talk about that is so important. And I think if we won the World Cup, that would get bums on seats because those heroes that we've got watched to go and win a World Cup are right there at King's Meadow at the City Academy Stadium and they're so close. And there's, you know, why wouldn't you want to go and watch that? I think the point that I must make as the last point is very rarely have I ever seen somebody go to a women's game and not want to come back. The problem is getting them to the games. Kieran? Mine's a little bit different. I'd actually like to see the non-believers and the people that you're not going to convert just leave the game alone. You know, I'm forever having to read comments on social media when the BBC or BT Sport or a big outlet are putting a story out and then comments underneath, some of them are disgusting. Like, they really are. There is no need for people to be commenting on something that they have no interest in. There are sports that I don't like, but I don't seek them out on social media and start commenting on the articles or commenting on the posts. Women's football, whenever it's promoted on social media, whenever a high-profile article goes up, for all of the good that you will see underneath it, there is probably twice as much negativity that goes with it. And this is people who are on the wind-up, looking for banter, if that's the term that you like to use. But that, you know, that word's banned on this programme, by the way. Yeah, thank you. It's a word I don't like either. But, I mean, you know, when these guys will put out a tweet or a story that they've promoted, you can guarantee that no there will be... Cares. No one cares is the term everyone likes. You know, no one cares, I don't care. If you cared by commenting in the first place. And, and unfortunately, women's football attracts this. And I would like to see my female colleagues given more respect. I'd like to see the players on the pitch given more respect. And those people that don't have an interest, fine. OK, we're not going to be able to convince you. We're not going to be able to convert you. Just leave it alone. Go and follow the men's game if that's what you have an interest in. Go and follow rugby or cricket or whatever it might be that you have an interest in. There are people who do care. There are people who do follow it. And it is growing. And that seems to be a problem for some people. So my wish for 2019, just leave it alone. If you've got nothing nice to say, don't say anything. Well, we can talk about leagues and World Cups, but as a father, it's pretty simple. I want 2019 to be the year that girls are no longer told that football is a boys' game. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.